So like the other prophets, Micah is a pre-Assyrian prophet who ministered to Judah. Amos mostly ministered to Israel, and Hosea ministered to Israel. But Micah's addressing Judah, and he's addressing that Judah's beginning to act like Israel. And he's warning Judah that the Assyrians will come and take you too, if you continue to act like the, the people of Israel. So he is ministering during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. These are the last kings of Judah before the Assyrians come and take Israel. They're not the last kings of Judah completely, just right before that exile comes. The main idea of the book of Micah is to condemn Judah for their violation of the Mosaic Covenant and to call them back to covenant loyalty. Israel is at the point where they don't want to repent, and they're not going to repent. And they're pretty much going to be judged and carried off to exile. Judah's on the razor, so to speak. And Judah has still got enough righteousness in them and enough godly people, and they've just gone through four godly kings in a row. But then they've headed into Ahaz, and Ahaz broke the streak. And they're going back into idolatry. And so they are not guaranteed. There's enough people who are still willing to repent. There's enough people who are still full. God, and they haven't gotten deep enough that they've hit the point of no return. So Micah's like, please, please, don't go that route. Don't go the route. And luckily, after the four kings, godly kings in a row, streak, Ahaz breaks that streak and goes totally ungodly and messes everything up. But then his son Hezekiah is going to repent and become a righteous man. And he's going to keep Assyria. Well, he's not going to keep. His repentance is going to protect them from Assyria taking them exile because God is going to promise them that. And we talked about that in the book of Kings. So that's what Micah is dealing with. The book appears to once again, like Hosea, to be more of an anthology of speeches. It doesn't seem to be a chronological story of messages that are being developed. It seems to be more of a collection of just random speeches that were given, put together. So this book is divided into three oracles that begin with the word hear slash listen, Shema. Each of these divisions begin with hear Israel, Shema, which is a play on Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy chapter 6 says here, Shema, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. So now Micah is saying, calling them covenant loyalty, and he's starting each one of his divisions with here, O Israel calling them back to covenant loyalty. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is the prophetic message that Yahweh gave to Micah of Moresheth. He delivered this message during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The prophecies pertain to Samaria and Jerusalem. Listen, all you nations. Pay attention, all inhabitants of the earth. The sovereign Yahweh will testify against you. Yahweh will accuse you from his majestic palace. So Micah begins with God sitting on his throne, and a throne of a judge that is far more greater and scarier than Judge Judy. And he is calling them out the nations and accusing them of crimes. And he says, this is what I have against you. Look, Yahweh is coming out of his dwelling place. He will descend and march on the earth's mountaintops. The mountains will disintegrate or melt beneath him, and the valleys will be split in two, and the mountains will melt like wax in the fire, and the rocks will slide down like water, cascading down a steep slope. 
Now that's a powerful imagery. Okay, Yahweh is sitting on the throne. When we get to Ezekiel, that throne is pretty fabulous. He's sitting on this throne up in heaven above the sky, and he now comes down. God only comes down for two reasons. And I don't mean this like literally, because God is always with us and that kind of stuff. But in the metaphorical language of the poets and the prophets, he comes down to either deliver you or to punish you. And obviously the context here is not salvation, it's punishment. And he comes down this glory, okay? Remember when he came down to Mount Sinai? This is Mount Sinai language. He came down this big whirlwind judgment of fire with lightning shooting out and everything. And he rests on the mountain, and the mountain was being ripped apart in an earthquake and a great wind and the fire and the lightning and everything. And the people are looking up, and they're like peeing their pants. They're like, we can't handle this anymore. Don't let God speak to us anymore. You can speak to Moses, God, and Moses will tell you what you say because we can't even handle his voice and the sight and the noise of the fire and the whirlwind, let alone to actually come fully into his presence. So Micah is returning them back to Mount Sinai and experience. And that's what he's describing. But this time when God is coming down, Mount Sinai, the mountains can't handle his glory. They are melting. And the rocks are sliding down like melting ice cream. And his fierce anger is so intense that he's, he's scary enough when he was giving the law, let alone coming down in judgment. And the mountains can't handle his glory when he comes down. All this is because of Jacob's rebellion. There you go, Jacob. And the sins of the nation of Israel. How has Jacob rebelled, you ask? Samaria epitomizes the rebellion. Now, Samaria is another name for Jacob. Ephraim is more of a tribal political name for Jacob. Jacob is more of a sinful name. Israel is more of what God called him to be kind of a name. But Samaria is the region. So when the kingdom split, the first place that the kings went up was up to the north. And then eventually under Omar. He made Samaria the capital of Israel. And then eventually that became so prominent in, um, that Samaria became the nickname for Israel. And of course, later we're going to know it as the Samaritans. That's where they're all from. Where are Judah's pagan worship centers, you ask? They are right in Jerusalem. I will turn Samaria into a heap of ruins on an open field. Vineyards will be planted there. I will tumble the rumble of her stone walls down into the valley and tear down her fortifications to their foundations. All her carved idols will be smashed to pieces. All her metal cult statues will be destroyed by fire. I will make a waste heap of all her images. Since she gathered the metal as a prostitute collects her wages, the idols will become a prostitute's wages again. So God shows up in this great Mount Sinai experience. But this time he's not coming to a delivered people to give them the law so they can righteously be in a relationship with him. This time he's coming to burn them in the fire to purify them. That's the imagery that's here. Putting all the metal in the fire and burning it and melting it down under intense heat. So the first time he delivered them and gave them the law and said this is what it means to be righteous. Now he's coming and he's going to burn them to purify them from their unrighteousness. And he's going to burn them in the judgment. Once again, that whirlwind storm imagery is judgment. And he's going to purify them. And that's important to understand because Isaiah is going to pick up on this purifying theme and really kick it into high gear. 
that God is using judgment to purify. And just like you heat up a metal, like gold or silver or anything, what happens is that metal gets really intense. And, and, and if, if metal had nerve endings, it would hurt like crazy. And that metal gets intense, it melts down, and then all the impurities and dirt come to the top, and it's called dross. And you scrape it off, and you throw it on the floor because you don't want it. And then when it cools down, you have purified gold. And God is saying here, this is what I'm going to do with Assyria. Assyria is going to be my fire. And Assyria is going to burn you like metal. And those who are evil and wicked will die and be scraped off and thrown on the first floor like dross. And those who are righteous and are purified and turn back to God, you will be the refined gold, the refined silver, the refined metal. So God comes in judgment. Then in chapter 2, he gives a woe. Now this word woe is a funeral word. The word woe is what you use when you're mourning the dead. So when God says, woe to Israel, woe to Judah, he's talking as if they're dead because the judgment is coming. He's mourning them. He's mourning them because they're about ready to die because the greedy had plotted to take the land and the inheritance from others. They're plotting to take land from people. Now remember, this isn't just a matter of theft. This is stealing someone's gifts from God and stealing their inheritance for their children. And this is most clearly demonstrated in 1 Kings when Ahab steals the land from Naboth. And so from the very beginning, God gave the land to each of the tribes. And then each of those tribes gave land to the clans and the families. And this was a gift of God. And remember, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the land is the most precious gift that God could ever give you. And the land is where you dwell with God. The land is where you're blessed by God. The land is where you receive salvation and protection from God. He gave the land to them representing all that stuff. To steal the land from them is to take from them what God gave to them. And that's not right. And to steal the land from them is to take the blessings of God and the inheritance of God from the descendants of those people and to rob them of any hope of a future. Now you and I can lose our house or lose our land or lose our job and it would be it would be horrible and it would be suffering but in america it's pretty easy to start all over again and i mean easy relatively i mean it's not easy it's going to be hard it's a lot of work but it's possible and in fact lots of people have probably done it lots of times because i mean even before the before we even had kids my wife was like laid off like five different times okay so it's constantly starting all over But in the ancient world, if you lose your land, you have nothing. Absolutely nothing. And there is no land to get anywhere else because everybody else has land. And it was already divvied up to everybody. So God really hates this. And he calls this raw. And so he says, because of your raw evil, I'm going to bring raw disaster upon you. I will return your evil for evil. What you've done to other people, stealing their land from them, I will steal the land from you completely and take you into exile. And that's important to understand. Even when you think, wow, but God, exile is kind of harsh. Yes, but they're going to exile because they've stolen the land from so many other people 
and cheated them and became powerful and wealthy as a result of it. So they're getting what they've done to other people. And they're like, yeah, but God, it's kind of harsh that they're being killed by the Assyrians. Yes, but they've murdered lots of people in the name of child sacrifice. And they've murdered lots of poor people to gain more money as they've taken their land and that kind of stuff. They're do- getting exactly what they've done to other people. Remember, these are not innocent people. And there are people that are so sinful and so vile that Hollywood hasn't even made a movie about this yet. Because even Hollywood is not willing to go there yet. He is judging for them. And then he goes out to the prophets. Okay, these are the kings and the wealthy taking land and inheritance. But then he goes out to the prophets and he basically says, you're telling the... Sorry, he goes out to the people. And he says, you're telling the prophets to stop speaking the word of God. Whenever the prophets say God is going to punish you and you're going to go to exile, you're telling them to shut up. We don't want to hear what God's saying. Because that makes us feel bad. And it offends us and it's intolerant. Okay, and so this is what God is dealing with. So God ends us with saying, Yahweh is coming for you. Chapter 2, verse 12. He just got done finished saying, Yahweh is coming for you in judgment. And then he says this, I will certainly gather all of you, O Jacob. I will certainly assemble those Israelites who remain. I will bring them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in the middle of a pasture. They will be numerous, so numerous, that they will make a lot of noise. The one who can break through barriers will lead them out. They will break out, pass through the gate, and leave. Their king will advance before them. Yahweh himself will lead them. Now this is powerful. He says, I'm coming for you, and you're going to be judged, and I'm going to scatter you to the nations in judgment. But then he describes himself like a shepherd. A shepherd who begins to call out to a scattered sheep. And my sheep know my voice. And I will call to them. And the ones who truly know my voice and truly love me will hear it. And they will start breaking through the false gates that they're trapped behind. The the nations that they belong to. And they will break out and they will come back to me. And I will gather them to me. And gather them around me. Now, as we keep going, you're going to see the shepherd language used a lot in the prophets. And then you see a lot of times we're like, my, when I go through this, my students are like, oh, wow, this shepherd language is kind of like Jesus. He talked about being a shepherd a lot. It's like, no, 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 no. The shepherd language of Jesus is more like the prophets, okay? He's intentionally picking up off of the prophets. So he will gather them together. And then he references the Abrahamic promise. They will be so numerous. Remember, I will make you like the sand on the seashore. Even though I whittled you down in judgment, and there are very few that are left of you that are remnant. And God calls the righteous few the remnant. I will bless you again. You will become numerous. But then this is interesting language. This does not scream Jesus. Because most people would not pick up on this at this time period in this context. But in hindsight, we can look back and say, this is Jesus. He says, their king will advance before them. Yahweh himself will lead them. So he talks about a king leading them, a shepherd coming to call them back. And we know this king as the Davidic king. But then he says, I will personally lead you. On the surface, you could read this as Yahweh is the God over the king, and the king will lead the people. But it really sounds synonymous 
as if they're mirroring each other and they're the same thing. And one could almost see this as Jesus is the king and Jesus is also God, Yahweh. Now, once again, in this context, it doesn't scream it. And you can't make an ironclad argument for that all by itself. But I say that because as we get to these restoration promises and we begin to stack them upon each other and they become layered and layered and layered and layered, it will become so obvious. Oh my gosh, this is totally talking about a God-man. This is totally talking about a God-man. Now, a lot of these verses all by themselves do not, are not convincing. And this is why a lot of Jews who read the Bible very rarely today will read it and they'll be like, I don't see Jesus. But then if you can actually sit down with them and put them all together, then it's like, oh my gosh, this is so obvious. This is so obvious. So he promises them one day he'll be like a shepherd. Now remember that shepherd language is very loving. It's very pastoral. It's very caring. In chapter 3, he moves into a new division. And he's going to attack the leaders for falsely leading Israel. But he's also going to promise a future hope again. He then goes after the injustice of Israel's leaders. And in chapter 3, he lists off all these things that the leaders are doing wrong. They're, they're, they're overly taxing people. They're moving boundary lines. They're, they're oppressing the poor, making money off of them. And then they're going to like parties and they're drinking the wine that they've stolen from the poor people and all these things that you can possibly imagine because it happens in our culture all the time. And he lists all their injustice. And he says, because of this, Assyria is coming. Assyria is coming. And they will judge you. Well, they won't judge you. They'll destroy you. 